So here we are at the bridge between phase two and phase three. By the time this video goes live, the ruminations should already be set for the coming year. I don't know what those are at this point, of course, of recording them, since that's going to be like a two-month-long process that we haven't even started yet. But when we get there, <clears throat> I'm curious if the MCU Phase 3 will be voted in, since both Phase 1 and Phase 2 were kind of lock-ins in both of the previous uh, Floodgate cycles. I mention that, though, because this is kind of the breather episode. We had Age of Ultron. We had Guardians, which was kind of its own thing. But then we had this... This is really the last light-hearted bit. Phase 3, well, okay, I shouldn't say that because obviously it's Thor Ragnarok, but Phase 3 is generally a lot darker than the other phases, and that makes a degree of sense. But we needed to have just one last moment of levity. And what's funny is, near as I can tell, none of that was intentional. Now, this is one of the rare movies along the series of films I've been talking about for the last few months where I basically can't give you proper behind-the-scenes look at because it is so long and extensive. There's just so much that happened. This film had been in development hell for 33 years. That's not an exaggeration, by the way. 1980 is when they started working on this film. Or rather, an Ant-Man film. Point in fact, during what I usually like to think of as the second era of films, when it comes to superhero films like the old Spider-Mans, uh, the original X-Men films, uh, you know, the Batman, Batman 1, Batman uh, Forever? No, the one before, Batman Returns, that is it, Batman and Batman Returns. All of that stuff was in the second era of filmmaking. It wasn't until Batman Begins, which officially started the third era of film uh, superhero films, which was then codified by Iron Man, that we entered the new era. That's how long ago they were working on an Iron Man film. They originally were going to have Edgar Wright work on it, for fairly obvious reasons, and the rights bounced all over the place, and people just kept leaving the project, and then coming back, but they didn't want to do it, so they worked on something else instead, and then the Fantastic Four movie came out instead, and they worked on something else instead, and people just kind of cycled through the, the project constantly. Now, what's funny about this is... Right around when this film was finally entering the point where they were going to do some real work on it was right before Iron Man came out. And they, like I said, they had Edgar Wright involved, and the MCU was still kind of being a thing. You know, Kevin Feige was still pushing the idea that at the time everyone was saying was crazy of the continuity universe thing, the, the cinematic universe. And so they kind of hammered this out, and originally he it was supposed to be... Ant-Man was going to be a, one of the lead-in films leading up to the Avengers. And, of course, Ant-Man, Hank Pym, was going to be in the Avengers because he's Ant-Man. He was one of the original Avengers. I mean, come on, right? He's the guy who frickin' built Ultron. Well, <coughs> excuse me. Having gotten through all that, they were like, for various reasons, basically torpedoed that. Wright himself basically said, I don't, I don't want him in the Avengers film. Please, please don't do anything with it. I'm, I'm still working on this. And so it got delayed even more, more people left the project, and we entered basically the Phase 2 era. At this point, this is about 2013 or so, is when finally they actually started real work on the film. Now this is funny in its own right, because for all of the development hell and the people bowing out of the project, when they finally sat down and said, okay, we've got, uh, what's his name, I wrote his name down, Peyton something. <sighs> Please tell me I wrote his name down. I am the worst. Did you guys know that? I don't know if you're aware of that. <laughs> I actually get made fun of on a semi-regular basis for forgetting names and not writing them down. I don't. I never know which names I need to know. 
So don't always write them down. Peyton Reed. Peyton Reed was was put onto the project because Wright left the project, and then he and Rudd ended up doing, and, and like four other people I should mention, ended up doing substantial rewrites, and it was actually, because of how much it took to get to this point, they were effectively starting production on the movie from scratch. It was basically making a new movie from the bare-bones ideas of the old one. It was so from scratch that they were like, okay, let's just push it back to Phase 3. It was only after some thought that they officially labeled it a Phase 2 movie. But let's be honest, Ant-Man is the gateway between Phase 2 and Phase 3, so regardless of whether you call it Phase 2 or Phase 3 is irrelevant at that point. But I mention that because once they actually got Reed and Rudd involved, things just went like that, and everything just kind of built together perfectly. But I want to mention a couple other things really quick. First of all... A lot of those rewrites that were happening in the script were happening because of the Marvel Creative Community. I keep saying that wrong. Marvel Creative Committee. <laughs> I was doing that back in Guardians, too. And they were just being the usual, you know, in, in influential selves and constantly saying, well, we should do this, well, we should do that. And it wasn't until, you know, Reed was involved that they were like, okay, fine, we'll let you do your own thing. Now... There were some other issues at this point in time. Uh, I mentioned people leaving the project. Well, I want to uh, name drop at least two people who left the project. Uh, Edgar Wright. <laughs> Wright has been very vocal about how much he thought that this film uh, was not his thing and how he really hated what was going on with the creation of this film. I've seen a lot of information and documents about his original script, and I'm going to try to say this as politely as I can, but I don't think it would have been very good. It was originally intended to be far more of a serious, dramatic, Edgar Wright-style film, you know, in, in the style of uh, the Keaton Batmans, for example. And it was also originally intended to have literally zero continuity with the rest of the MCU. In fact, this was a, such a sticking point, because Feige and the rest of the Marvel studio, because at this point it was Marvel Studios under Disney, uh, said, no, it has to be part of the MCU, that's the shtick. And Wright was like, no, it's in its own film. It has nothing to do with anything. I'm not going to reference anything. It doesn't have the same setting, and they're not going to reference this one. And this was such a sticking point that by several accounts, although, again, this is not definitive, this is the final straw for him and why he finally ended up leaving the project. It's also worth noting that this is around when Joss Whedon was basically saying, yeah, I'm getting really sick of this crap because of what happened back in Ultron, which we've already discussed at this point. So... Everyone, so there was just this generally antagonistic air towards the end of Phase 2 for, for the MCU in general. It's actually nothing short of astonishing that we got as good of films as we did, all things considered. Although of them, I would say Ant-Man and Guardians are probably the real shining stars of the tail end of that era there. Although I did, of course, like Winter Soldier as well, but I consider that the beginning, but I'm going to have topic point being. This just kind of turned into a cluster. One big cluster of me getting my finger, or my toe, caught on my head headphones there. Which leads us, of course, to the actual film we finally got made. Originally, quite a few other people were in consideration for the roles. It, this, this seems to be a running trend. But the, they finally decided, and, and okay, so let me rewind a second. I mentioned Reed, the director. He was so excited about the ability to do this film that he basically dropped his other projects, abandoned something he was already working on, and was like, yeah, you're sold, sold. I've cleared my schedule. Let me work on this. Why is that relevant? One of the things I have said many, many times in my life is that genuine enthusiasm produces good product. I've said that my entire life, and many, many times historically have I been proven right about this. There's a lot of evidence for that. And this is a good example of that. 
He really threw himself into this film. And he did something that not a lot of the directors would do at this point in time. He approached the actors and said, what do you think about your roles? Because remember, at this point, the script was effectively being completely restructured and rearranged. A lot of the original bits of Wright's script were still there. But he, he wanted to readjust, address some roles, etc. One of the biggest ones is uh, Evangeline Lilly has mentioned that she was approached about her role as Hope. And her role, because her, her role was originally basically a can not a cameo, but you know, just an ancillary character, a third-tier character. And she wanted to be more of a presence. And thus her character and her story arc and the connections between her and Hank Pym were brought more to the forefront and made part of the main story part. You know, stuff like that. But of course, Rudd himself, Paul Rudd, was also brought in for quite a bit because Paul Rudd's kind of awesome like that. And here's the interesting thing. Rudd wasn't exactly an unknown actor in a similar vein to Chris Pratt. This officially catapulted him into what would be considered A-list stardom. But the reason they brought him in, and I was kind of leading up to this point, is because the man is incredibly charismatic. He's just got a natural likability to him. In real life, too. I mean, the guy's just kind of, hey, yeah, what's going on? Everyone's cool, right? And the man is also very, very talented as an actor. I've mentioned before that there's two types of talented actors. Actually, I brought this up just this year uh, with regards to Iron Man 3. There's an actor who can act in a specific type of role very, very well, and then there's an actor who can act in a variety of roles. You know, he's got a broad range very, very well. You know, Ben Kingsley was the example he's there. Paul Rudd is a range actor. He can do a lot of different roles, and he can do them completely straight-faced and without hesitation. And I think that's part of why he works so well as Ant-Man, because in a similar vein to Guardians of the Galaxy, this film is both serious and comedic. Now, this one tells a lot less jokes than Guardians of the Galaxy, but the overall tone is definitely more lighthearted. This is far more of a family piece than it otherwise could be. It is also probably worth noting that this film is... <sighs> deceptively dark. Because the threat of the film is one of those subtle things that most people don't really think about or isn't a grand scale. It is, to put my own, to use my own analogy here, this is not a T-Rex stampeding towards you, this is a snake biting you in the back of your knee. You know, it's just, ah, what was that? You know, that's the kind of threat being posed here. If Hydra, what's left of Hydra at this point, had actually gotten hold of these suits and the shrinking tech, that's insane. The amount of things they could do with that kind of firepower and weaponry is nuts. Which, I suppose, brings me to the beginning of the film. We see Pym go in to meet with the heads of S.H.I.E.L.D. They're actually building... Oh, I don't remember the name of the place. They're building the structure that will be the headquarters for S.H.I.E.L.D. Uh, that, that we see in Captain America Winter Soldier. And we've got... Stark is there. Howard Stark. You know, the genius and the funding. We've got Peggy Carter, who is the, the in intelligence genius and who knows the, the information community. And then we've got Carson. Well, he's Hydra. <laughs> and it's funny because that's S.H.I.E.L.D. in a nutshell right there, isn't it? Stark, Carter, Carson. Anywho. <clears throat> so we move forward a little bit. We find out that poor Scott is being released from jail. Ah, oh, at long last. You've got some weird goodbye rituals, dude. <laughs> uh, excuse me. Uh, I should say prison. He says several times jail, but there is actually a distinction between jail and prison. And, and given the sentence he had, this was prison that he was specifically being released by. So he's released from prison. Woo! Luis is there. Can I just take an aside and say really quick that one of the reasons I love this film is the actors. The, the, the actors are just great. 
Uh, I'm, I'm a decent fan of Douglas. I, you know, I wasn't ever a huge fan of his because most of the kind of movies he's in were just not my kind of thing. But he's a good actor and he does a good job here. He adds a lot of gravity to his role. Evangeline Lilly, which I really hope I'm pronouncing her name right, is great here. I actually was probably one of the only people who really liked her inclusion back in the Hobbit trilogy, and I think she does an excellent job here as well. Um, she manages to nail, again, several emotions and several perspectives throughout the course of the film, and I think her story going throughout it is, is as integral as Scott's own. Then we've got uh, the, 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 the Wombats. Well, I'm just going to comment on briefly, but they are awesome, and every scene they're in just made me chuckle, or at the very least... Uh, and then we have Paxton. I'll talk more about him in a minute, but he does a good job of his role, too. He basically comes across as an honest cop. <laughs> Trying really hard not to make a comment about that. But also someone who is, let's call him very low scale. You know, he, so, he sees this weird, crazy stuff going on. He, he doesn't even begin to know how to comprehend it. This is so far outside of his pay grade, right? So instead he's just like, um, yeah, uh, it's only when he is faced with the reality of what's going on and, you know, sees that, that he kind of starts to realize, okay, this is superhero stuff, and he's a superhero trying to save, you know, my stepdaughter, or I guess that would be my daughter-in-law. So I'm, I'm kind of with this. I'm kind of with this. And he turns out to be cool in the end. And I actually like that. In fact, even though he had an extremely minor role in Ant-Man and the Wasp, I actually really liked his inclusion in Ant-Man and the Wasp as someone who was supportive and embracing not only of Scott, but of the family as a whole. It was, it was just a great bit. I love the bit where he's like, oh, come on, hug! And he just hugged the whole group. Getting off topic. But uh, you notice I'm dancing around one particular character, and that is Luis. Who is awesome! <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Michael Pena is a very good actor, he, but he, he plays super serious, deathly doom roles, right? Seeing him in this as, as mine, yeah, no. I, I can't even do it. I can't even begin to, to portray the actor, portray the character of Luis the way he does. He does a wonderful job of it. Every scene he's in just has me grinning. Cause there's just such a, he's a geek. He's just such a lovable geek. I love it. He's just, oh man, that was super cool. Man, I wish I had a suit. You know, if I had some superpowers, it doesn't even have to be powers, you know, just the suit. It'd be super cool. Yeah. And it's a crazy, crazy stupid fine. I, I, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm not making fun of him in any se sense of the word. He is awesome. <laughs> and the uh, Luis sections are some of my favorite parts of the film. Okay, tell me what's going on. Okay, so I got this word from this guy, and he talked to this chick, and she's like, yo, man. And the decision, brilliant decision on the on director's part, the decision to go ahead and have the characters, the actors who aren't Luis, moving and speaking with Luis's mannerisms as Luis is narrating them was brilliant. And it sells the visual audio storytelling perfectly. I just wanted to give special praise to that. So, of course, he goes, you know, he's, he's, he's ah, Baskin Robbins, hey, yeah. Would you like to try a mango slushy? Yeah, that's, that's cool. <laughs> I'm trying so hard not to be cynical here. I mentioned how this is a subtly dark film. Well, here's the first subtle darkness for you. This guy has a master's in electrical engineering. Do you know how much work someone like that would get in real life? Now, granted, that probably varies from place to place, but I have lived in three places in my life that I can think of right off the top of my head where that kind of person would get a job like that and could probably command a salary. He works at Baskin-Robbins. Why? Felon. Former felon. Served his time. But he's got to wait, uh, well, depending on the state, but seven years before that can get off his record. How do you get a job like that? That's one of the darker aspects of the film. 
see, Scott's problem is not... At one point in time, Pim says, when things get hard, you always go into crime. And I can't help but disagree with that. Because that's not really the problem here. Granted, Scott is definitely chaotic good. He is very heavily leaning towards the screw the rules, I'm trying to do what's right kind of mentality. This is probably one of the reasons why he ends up on the cap side of things, but I digress. Point being, that is definitely his mentality, but it's not as if he is not trying, and it's not as if he is he is failing by any fault of his current actions. By which I mean he is willing to degenerate himself to working at Baskin-Robbins, no offense to anybody who's worked at Baskin-Robbins, in order to just be able to have a job, any job. Now I know what you're saying. Lore, you're being so derogatory towards retail. I've worked retail. More than once. I've worked fast food, too, actually. And if you are someone who has a very expensive and long-term college degree in electrical engineering, he's a master, so I want to stress that again, in electrical engineering, and you are reduced to working in retail because that's what you got, that is still basically an insult. However, he is still willing to do that. He is still willing to... to it's one thing to be like, I will do anything necessary. It's another thing to be willing to humiliate yourself, to accept the shame and embarrassment in order to accomplish something you want. And I like the fact that he puts that effort into it. He is clearly trying. However, he lied to Baskin-Robbins about the fact that he was a felon. So they fire him on the spot. Of course they do. Most places don't hire felons, regardless of any circumstances whatsoever. See, this is an interesting factoid for those of you who don't live in the States or have never had to encounter this in your lives. If you have a felony on your record of any kind whatsoever, there's just a, a check mark that shows up anytime someone does a background check on you for trying to rent you a place to live or get you a loan or get a job. All three of those check the same thing. I am being a little bit generalized here because I don't want to get into details, but the simple fact is all three of those check for that check mark, right? That check mark's there. The overwhelming majority of those places, well over 99%, will say, oh, automatic no. Automatic disqualified. We won't rent to you. We won't loan to you. We will not hire you. You're, you're an ex-felon. Now, I'm not going to spiral off into controversial topics here, though sure, surely I could. But um, all I'm going to say is that this helps to emphasize how hopeless and helpless Scott feels in the beginning part of the movie. He is actively trying to work, to go legit, but the system quite literally will not allow him to. He is actually fortunate, no joke, to have gotten the attention of Pym, because if he hadn't, I guarantee you, his story would end very sadly, very shortly. Regardless, moving on. So then we have the Yellow Jacket. Now, first of all, I, I kind of referenced this earlier, but the Yellow Jacket is uh, actually, it's actually intimidating looking. I, I applaud the art designers of this film who managed to take the yellow jacket from the comets and actually make it look good. I mean, come on. Have you seen the comics version of the yellow jacket? Look it up sometime. <laughs> um, he gives a little trailer. You'll notice that everything that is shown in that is a form of either assassination or sabotage. That's the kind of thing you want to sell in the open market. The moment I saw that, I was just kind of like, okay, Cross is the bad guy. I mean, obviously Cross is the bad guy, but I mean, you, what? <laughs> and then Hydra guy, we actually don't find out he's Hydra till later, but evil guy, Carson, is like, hey, I will give you way more money if you will sell to me before you sell to anyone else. And he's like, yeah, okay, sure. I like money. Money's cool. 
That's all I'm interested in is money and self-verification. Corey, Corey Stoll plays Cross. He does a good job of it. Let me start with that. I have to say, though, Cross is, sadly, a fairly typical MCU villain. Near as I can tell, his characterization is the fact that he is evil and that he has a gargantuan ego and that he is smart. It is, of course, worth noting, and Corey Stoll himself has commented on this, that Cross is effectively a version of Hank Pym minus morality. That if, if you took... Because Hank Pym is already a cantankerous, kind of egomaniacal bastard, right? I mean, I'm sorry. There's a reason he is so much of a pain to everyone around him. This comes up in the second film as well, actually. And the second film, actually, part of his story arc is him trying to overcome his own cantankerous nature and make up for the mistakes of the past. But in this film, he just comes across as someone who's just kind of... But still trying to help Scott out because... Well, forgive me for sharing this quote right now. We are not saving our world. We are saving theirs. That's a great quote, by the way. I really like that quote. It kind of shows that he really does care about the next generation, his daughter, more specifically. And he recognizes very accurately that Scott cares about Cassie, because he does. So the idea of being willing to sacrifice and hurt and die in the service of their world, yes, sold. And that is, of course, what gets Scott on board with this. And if you're paying attention, that's what gets Hope on board with this, too. But I'm getting ahead of myself. My point being, that morality, that desire to help others, that is what separates Hank Pym from Cross. And basically is also the only thing that separates him from Cross. Because Cross is just a sociopath, effectively. That brings me to a question, though. How many of you guys uh, think that Cross was always this bad, or that working with the particle affected his brain. They mention that twice in the film. Twi two times they bring up the fact that the particle has negative effects on the brain. Uh, once Hank mentions it to Scott, and once Hope mentions it to him directly. You know, I can help you, you just need, you know, blah, blah, blah. Do you think that that has any impact? Honest question, because it's left off to our interpretation whether or not Cross was always this deranged maniac or not. Because right at the beginning of the film, well before he ever puts on the suit or shrinks anything or anything like that, he has the shrinking gun and he shrinks Frank. He assassinates Frank, his own employee, because Frank was concerned about legality. I'm not even going to begin to bring up how he shouldn't have gotten away with that in any way, shape, or form, but the relative point I'm trying to make here is that he was clearly totally okay with cold-bloodedly murdering one of his own people for effectively no reason. And that was towards the beginning of the film. Quick aside, why doesn't he market those? He has a gun that shrinks you down to molecules without doing so accurately. Uh, in, in short, it kills you, but it also gets rid of the body. Do you have any idea how useful of a tool that would be for assassination? I need to kill this person, and there's just a goop pile left. Now, they might be able to identify that goop pile or get some DNA samples from it. But the point is, you have now redu reduced the problem of assassination from kill, remove body, to kill. I mean, God, do you know how much 47 would like to have that? Anyways, I'm going to have topic. <clears throat> so, I want to give special praise to Abby Ryder Fortson. You're probably thinking, who the hell is that? She plays Cassie. She's adorable. You know, most, most kid actors have issues. She's, she's just adorable. That's all I have to add to that. Now, there's an interesting dynamic between Maggie, Paxton, Cassie, and Scott. Unfortunately, it, it feels weird. They have Judy Greer here, and she basically is an, is an ancillary you know, character, kind of like 
uh, Hope was supposed to be. But she does a good job with her portrayal because it's it's clear that she is mostly, uh, how do I put this, ignorant is the word I want to use. That she is someone who has been hurt by what he did in the past, obviously, because he did go to prison for what he did. And, you know, maybe you should have thought about your daughter before you decided to go to prison for your high morality or whatever. So obviously she has some legitimate anger and grievances towards him. Totally with that. But she doesn't think he's a monster. But at the same time, she seems to think that he should just be able to start over, right? Like, oh, well, now that's done. I'll just go get a job. I've already made my point about the jobs thing, so we can see how that's an inaccurate viewpoint. Now, Paxton, he's interesting because he starts off, and I, I mentioned this already, but I really want to restress this, because Paxton starts off as the jerk. He starts off as the 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 new boyfriend, right? The guy who's like, oh, yeah, and I'm, I'm the new blood, and you're old and awful and terrible. But we can see, and I, I credit the actress portrayal and the directing on this one, we can see that it's mostly just protectiveness. That he is mostly just defensive, not only of his wife, but of his adopted daughter. And we can kind of see over time that that really is what drives him. Not any sense of bullying, not sense of trying to be pushed down Scott or whatever. He's just defensive. And, like I said, he, he's, he's a ground-level cop, so he doesn't think about this superhero stuff. And, as we see by the end of the film, he, he has grown to the... I shouldn't even say grown, it's just more like he has accepted Scott. And I like that. Moving on. So, <clears throat> Luis. <laughs> I have another note about Luis, because Luis is awesome! <laughs> I really, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. I can't gush enough about Luis. He's so great. Um, so we have the scene where he has to invade the Pym Mansion. This is an important scene, because, first of all, it's wonderfully low tier. There's no superpowers, there's no mutant abilities, there's no nothing. This actually helps establish something that, in my opinion, really helps to distinguish Ant-Man from the typical MCU film. It's a heist film. It really is. If you look at the structure of it, you can see how this is a heist film. It happens to have superpowers involved here and there, but that's the only thing that distinguishes it. I like that, and it's one of the things I wanted to point out, because if I might be so bold, one of the most common criticisms I heard from Ant-Man when it came out was, oh, it's another MCU film, and I just don't agree with that. I, forgive me. <laughs> I don't mean to degenerate anyone else's opinion, I just I don't see it. Regardless, so we have the heist, the initial heist. He's agile, he knows parkour, he's very knowledgeable, he's very adaptable, he knows his electrical engineering, and he knows how to break into the vault and with, with the, uh, the fingerprint, which is great, and he knows how to break through the vault with the, with the cold. All of that's awesome, and all of it demonstrates the kind of skill and capacity that Scott himself has, and why Hank has his eye on him. Then we add the fact that all of, Paul, all of Scott's problems, all of them, are financial in nature. I mentioned that because if he had a regular income, he could probably help, you know, he could pay child support first and foremost, but in addition to that, he could be able to try and afford a place probably as a roommate of someone else, kind of like he is with Luis, and then he could afford to, you know, be able to exist for the years necessary in order to finally get his record cleared. But all of that requires money to start. I point this out because Pim is no effort whatsoever, has no hesitance whatsoever about basically flinging money around because he is, he's retired rich, right? Like, he, what is his job title? He is wealthy. And so, he can just toss that kind of money, like, remember the hundreds that he gives the women just to start the chain of events to get to Luis, right? So I point that out. It's funny how often superheroes' problems could be solved with money, though. Anybody who watched my Spider-Man on the PS4 premiere run knows how that became... It was such a common thing, it became a meme. Oh my god, we have money! Anyways. So, 
As with most heist movies, they show the plan first. This is what we're going to do. This is how we're going to infiltrate, blah, 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 blah. And they show the tools, and they show the planning. They do this three times for all three major heists throughout the course of the film. And then, of course, they show the plan itself when everything goes wrong, because that's, that's a typical heist format. We show you the plan, and we usually show you the plan by showing you people acting out the plan to show how it should look so that the audience understands how much things are going badly when things go badly. Like I said, very typical formula. <clears throat> There's some nice camera work, for the most part, in the film. Um, I mentioned, though, the camera work especially. One of the things they did, which was brilliant, they used several cinematic trickery. Trickeries? <laughs> several camera tricks. Let's just make that nice and simple. In order to make this film look distinguished from other shrinking films. Um, things with the, the aspect, things with the wide lens. But my most, the most important thing they did, and in my opinion, this was the best thing they did, was they actually built sets that are like this big, you know, not large, but very detailed. People spent a lot of time making basically these micro sets. And then they would put the camera down in there and they would film it with a very high def, very small camera. And they would film the scene. And then they would CGI Paul Rudd on top of it. Watching it again, knowing that, because I got to see some of the behind the scenes for this film, it, it, it actually is very obvious every time they do that. And in my opinion, it really adds to the scene because, well, there's no nice way to put this because it just looks more real when you are, you know, when you're down here looking at this like this versus when you're up here looking at something that's supposed to be like that. Like there's just a distinguished different visual acuity to it that the mind just is like, aha, I'm tiny. And it adds to the flavor of the film wonderfully. So, <laughs> uh, I, I, then a bunch of stuff happens. I'm just looking at my notes here. We, we're going to skip forward several scenes, you know. I mentioned the whole, ah, oh, you're caught. Hope actually called the cops on him. I was wondering how the cops got there. Funnily enough, she didn't know about his daughter. She was just being petty and trying to hurt her dad, which is, you know, as I said, part of the B-plot. Um, we learn about how, you know, how the ants control works and how, there's a, there's a whole origin story thing that normally happens. The learn the power section of the film, which I don't have much to talk about. Although, I do have one thing to say. What's funny is the ants themselves are actually surprisingly useful tools. Because, because ants are everywhere, and because ants are easy to make more of them, and there's also a multiple type of ants, and ants in teamwork with other ants can accomplish quite a few things if they were properly organized. As the film itself shows. Now, obviously, the reason they use ants is because he's called Ant-Man, but I have to point out that despite what I've heard several detractors say, the usage of ants makes a lot of sense to me, as long as you can control all the different types of ants equally and to coordinate them. Think of it this way. How many of you played have ever, ever played a real-time strategy game? StarCraft, WarCraft, whatever. Uh, you know, Total Annihilation, Age of Empires. How many of you have ever played that and been, you know, okay, I need hydralisks here, and I need banelings over here, and I want my roaches burrowed here, and I've got a couple of swarm hosts up here, and I've got my mutas coming out the back. You're controlling all these different types of units to accomplish a singular goal. Now imagine for a moment if each of those types of units um, didn't coordinate with each other and couldn't work towards a singular goal. Well, what you'd have is ants, <laughs> because they'd all just be doing their own thing. You see my point. Now you could argue that this would apply to other bugs, and I would agree with you. I just thought I'd point that out. Also, they talk about how the shrinking tech works. I've managed to shrink the difference distance between atoms. I'm just going to go ahead and say, uh-huh. <laughs> let's, let's, just, let's just all accept this. It's magic. All right, moving on. Let's, I, I could tr totally dissect the, the, the physics of that, and I am an idiot when it comes to science. So, no. <laughs> magic. Okay, got it. Moving on. Now... 
So, okay, the first move we do is we call the Avengers. <laughs> I do like how they call that out. It's also funny in its own right that Hank's only reason for not doing so, other than the obvious financial reasons for not having the Avengers involved, is the specific fact that, you know, they... He has such a grudge against Stark Industries because of Howard that he can't see past that. Now, that is petty and, and kind of pathetic, really, to which I agree. That is Hank Pym. He is very pathetic, and his ego is the size of the sun. So, I'm with that. What I do want to mention, though, <laughs> the, that makes sense. The thing that doesn't make sense is why Hank himself doesn't wear the suit. He gives the excuse, it take a toll on me. Which is also implied to be the reason why he doesn't want her to wear the suit. Because he wants to protect her from whatever it did to him, and obviously whatever, what it did to her mother. But the problem there is they never explained what the toll taken on him was. In fact, i got to be 100% honest, several times I've seen this film, including this time, I assumed he was just making that up. Oh yeah, it took a toll on me, I can't do it anymore. Because, you know, he's like 50-something or whatever, he can't do this anymore. And of course, immediately after that, he gives the, you know, we, we do this to save their world speech to Scott. Which makes perfect sense for why he would want Scott to wear the suit instead of him. Because he is specifically not just trying to save the world with this whole take out the suit thing, but he is specifically trying to help save their world. And Scott understands this, and he wants to reach out and help Scott. I mean, duh, right? That makes sense. The whole, it took a toll on me thing didn't even have to be there, in my opinion. I want to mention one quick thing about Cross really quick before we move forward. Why, uh... <laughs> So Cross is obviously evil, right? That's one of his main character traits. Is he also stupid? Okay, so there's a scene where he brings in these sheep, or goats, I'm not sure which, in order to experiment on them. Now, she says, I thought we were doing mice. And his response is, what's the difference? Okay, that's cute. You're trying to show that he's an evil psychopath. That's nice. I'll tell you the difference, even if you have absolutely no care whatsoever about ethics or morality. Money. It is far more difficult and costly to buy a whole bunch of goats, or whatever, than it is to buy a whole bunch of mice. It's also a lot harder and more costly to transport goats, or lamb, or whatever, instead of mice. So, he's apparently just a moron, just blowing money on whatever. I guess he doesn't care, after all. He's about to sell his weapons to Hydra for billions of dollars, and that couldn't possibly re rebound on him. There's no way Hydra would kill him for this. That's ridiculous. Anyways. So. Scott and Hope have a good scene shortly after this. Now, this is probably one of the first scenes where we really start to see Hope enter the narrative. Because up until this point, she's basically in the background, you know, scoffing at Scott. I Again, I like Evangeline Lilly. She does a great job with her role. But what I like best is she gets so pissed at this entire situation. And he goes out. You notice her door isn't locked, by the way. He goes out and starts chatting with her. And she's like, you think this is a joke? And he's like, you realize why he pulled me on, right? I'm expendable. I like that he is cognizant enough to recognize that and open enough to admit that about himself. That he does not matter to Hank. But she does. I mean, he understands that. He is a daughter. And he, it's a great way to demonstrate, because it's one thing to say your dad loves you. But to show that with evidence, oh, that's a different thing. And they start to bond a little bit, and, you know, there's that connection between the two. And she says, listen, this is how you control the ants. You have a reason to focus. So you focus on seeing your daughter again. And, hey, it works. And it's a nice touch, because that's kind of what leads towards his eventual infiltration of the Avengers facility. Now, this scene was almost wholesale written new. I like it, though. I like it a lot. Mostly because it's a nice continuity tie-in. 
but more to the point because this actually leads very smoothly into his inclusion in Civil War. Although, we'll, we'll talk about this if we ever cover Civil War, but all I'm going to say right now is Wasp was supposed to be there too, as the post-credit scenes of this film actually showcases, and instead it was just him, and we'll cover that later. But regardless, him versus Falcon is actually a pretty good scene. As I mentioned back in Winter Soldier, Falcon's awesome. And um, I like seeing him. You know, I like his presentation. I like what he's doing. I also like uh, how you get the impression... I'm, I'm trying to think how to phrase this properly. You get the impression that he's enough of a good judge of character to recognize that, okay, I'm going to bring you in and figure out what's going on here, but you know, then, but I'm not going to try and kill you, and, and you're obviously not Hydra or some evil dude or whatever. You're just some guy who's cool, but you want to borrow some tech from the warehouse, which is basically stealing it, and I can't allow that. My point being, I think Falcon has enough perception to recognize that this is a chaotic good person. I point that out because I think that's why he starts looking for him by the end of the film, and why he ends up calling on him when it comes to Civil War. Because that's a useful thing to be aware of when you're an Avenger. Anywho. So, Cross invades the home. Notice that Hank didn't leave the door locked. Cross invades the home. I was all set to kill him, he says later. But then you were there and I wasn't ready to kill you. I want you to keep that in mind because that means Cross came there with the explicit purpose of murdering Hank Pym in his own home. If you needed any other evidence of the fact that this guy is officially gone by this point, this is the one good character scene we have between him and Hank, where he's like, you know, I, what did you see in me? I, I, I saw myself. Why did you push me away? I saw too much of myself. As I already said, and as, you know, uh, Corey Stoll has already said, the Hank Pym uh, lookalike. I bring this up again, though, because <laughs> he immediately calls home just to kind of confirm that she's against him, is what I'm thinking he does that for, just to verify. Because he's gone by this point. Whether he was always gone or because the particle affects him, I don't know. Again, I'm looking forward to hearing your guys' thoughts on that. Regardless, this then leads to the finale. So Paxton rushes up, tries to, tries to arrest Pym. Funnily enough, he didn't leave his door locked. I'm pointing this out for a reason. It's a recurring trend. There are multiple scenes in this movie where events only proceed because someone didn't lock their door. In a heist movie. You can't tell me that's, on pur that's not on purpose. Anyways, Paxton goes to arrest Pym because Pym is, of course, you know, the suspect who was trying to, who, who got out. Scott, excuse me. Oh, yawn. What I like is that Pym tried to be honest with him first. You notice that? If I don't go in there, people are going to die. Yeah, that's, that's awfully dramatic. And then he just, okay, fine, I'm going in. You obviously aren't listening to me. It's a recurring theme with people trying to do things legally, failing, and then just doing things anyways. That's a very recurring trend in this film. Um, Hydra shows up, of course. <laughs> I don't have much to say about the finale. I always say that when it comes to MCU films. I don't have much to say about the finale. Um... Cross knew all the whole time, <laughs> I was always aware, and I knew you were infiltrating, and now I have both suits. <laughs> I'm not going to explain how I knew, or anything else whatsoever, but by golly, I knew. Sure, Cross. And then, uh, Luis. <laughs> There's, Luis is so awesome. There's this bit where they're like, alright, the, the place is about to explode, you need to get out. And as he's leaving, he turns and he sees the guard that he knocked out earlier, the boss. Who's lying there? He's like, "Oh God, I gotta get him," 
because we're the good guys. Yeah, 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 no, you know, we're the good guys. We got to go save him and get him out because it's going to go boom. Yeah, I, I love him. I really do. So he gets them out. They all manage to escape. The tank. There's also a, there's also a tank. That's the official moment you could tell, even though it's being played for levity. That's the official moment Paxton's in over his head. It's just okay. There's a lot of gunfire, a lot of confusion, and there's a tank. <laughs> um, the uh, <laughs> they have the shrink explosives, which you know detonate on the place, night annihilate everyone. Um, also, Paxton and his buddy don't handcuff the guys when when everything happens. Did you notice that? Anyways. So then they're, you know, they escape, you know, the buttons, everything, they're going flying, you know, uh, Cross has completely lost it, starts actually shooting inside a helicopter, which tells you that this man has completely lost his mind. And then, of course, he puts on the suit, and the moment he puts on his suit, he's like, yes, I will now kill everyone. I've heard some people complain that, what is it about MCU characters, and the moment they get some superpowers, they go crazy? Now, that is valid in some cases, point in case Iron Man 1. Obadiah Stane just suddenly went from, I'm going to have a legitimate business takeover procedure too. I'm going to kill and brutalize people in open daylight because i got a suit and it's awesome. Okay. But in this case, I think it doesn't quite apply because as we've already established, this man is loco for Cocoa Puffs long before he actually puts on that suit. As I pointed out, he shoots a man with a shrink ray death gun right in the first act of the film. So they're tumbling through the suitcase. I'm going to disintegrate you. Did it? Playing disintegrate. <laughs> little jokes. Little jokes. But I want to talk about the final battle really quick, what hap- which happens in Cassie's room, because it's, in my opinion, one of the best constructed final battles we've had in the MCU history. Because you know what I mean, right? Just about every MCU film has the same general format to its final battle. There's usually some kind of army or large force versus either an individual or a large army or force. There's a lot of explosions. There's a lot of CGI. Things are going... Oh my God! They're being tossed, and I'm throwing throwing buildings at you, you know. And and the, the the hero is always facing off against the villain directly. Oftentimes, they have the same type of power, you know. It's a very simple thing, and this is, of course, very MCU, with one notable exception. <laughs> they accurately portray this exactly how they should. There's several examples of this. Uh, I wrote down two, which are my favorite. My favorite is he manages to knock him into the electrical thing and from the pool. With a, with a ping pong paddle, just, and it does. It's not like it's just. And the second is Thomas the Tank Engine. You know the Thomas. He's like no, and the music's swelling. Oh my god, no! And then the camera just zooms out, and we see what's actually happening at normal size. What they managed to do is they managed to do the exact same MCU formula, while still making it funny and still basically poking fun at themselves for the nature of it, because they're doing it with toys and with dolls and whatnot. And I like that. I do have a quick question. There's a bit where he runs through the the carpet and then runs out to attack him with a bunch of ants. Where did those ants come from? I know what you're going to say. She's a young girl. She she eats in her room. There's tons of ants. (laughs) Towards the beginning of the film, towards the middle of the film, excuse me, Cassie is the one who gives motivation to Scott. She is the one who gives him the focus necessary to start controlling the ants. And I mentioned that would be tested later. Well, it's not with the ants, it's with the shrinking. She is how he gets out of the quantum realm. Now, we could analyze this, and it is a little bit silly that he basically just reverses the regulator and manages to exaggerate, you know, bring himself back. But based on what we know, both in this film and in the next one, Ant-Man and the Wasp, 
it actually is kind of portrayed that this isn't as easy as it looks, that just about anybody couldn't do this. Because remember, Scott himself has no memory of doing any of that because his brain wasn't really working right at that level. Instead, it is the more intangible connection between him and his daughter. Or let me just say this as bluntly as I can. It was love that saved him. Yeah, I know. Cheesy. Sentimental. But you can kind of see the logic there. That something that transcends simple reality was the thing that was able to save him from unreality. Just sort of fits in a symmetry in my brain I can't properly explain to you guys. And I do enjoy that concept. The idea that it was his love of his daughter that managed to save him from the quantum realm. So, you know, things work out. You know, Paxton kind of smooths things over. He says thank you. Everything's great. They're going to work forward. Hank is with his daughter. He's, he unveils the suit to his daughter. She's going to be in Civil War. Just kidding. Never mind. And then, of course, we have the final stinger. Now, this is important. Obviously, we are not coming to the MCU Phase 3 immediately, even if it is voted in in the Rumination Floodgates, which, again, I have no knowledge of at this point in time. Uh, I like to put a gap in between doing movies and doing games, so we'll probably wait a bit before we hit that. But I do want you to keep this in mind for whenever we hit that. Because the final thing is Bucky in the vice, Falcon in Cap. I know a guy. This is basically the beginning of darkness. This is when things really start to get serious and the levity is more or less officially gone. Also known as Marvel Phase 3. I hope you've enjoyed my thoughts on this otherwise excellent film. Uh, and if I am not mistaken, this should be the last film for 2018. The last rumination I cover for 2018. So I hope you've had a good year, and I will see you next time.